Today is Wednesday, November the 1st, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Does WeChat pose a security risk? Even though TikTok has received much attention for potential security risks, many security experts believe WeChat poses a greater threat. It receives less focus because it is not used as much as TikTok by government employees in North America. Canada has announced it will ban WeChat on government devices. Western governments have security concerns about it, mainly that the app could be used to spy on users. In June of 2020, the government of India banned WeChat along with 58 other Chinese apps, citing data and privacy issues. This ban was implemented in response to a border clash between India and China earlier that year. The Indian government claimed that these apps were stealing and surreptitiously transmitting users' data in an unauthorized manner to servers which have locations outside India and pose a threat to national security and defense. WeChat is one of the most used apps in the world. It is ubiquitous in China and also popular in Southeast Asia and within Chinese communities abroad. Canada's ban is effective immediately. WeChat is a popular messaging and social media networking platform, particularly among the Chinese communities in the United States. According to available data, there are approximately 19 million daily active users of WeChat in the United States. It is also worth noting that the majority of WeChat users are located in China, with over 1 billion regular users in that country. However, WeChat still has a significant user base in the United States, with approximately 1.5 million users among people in the United States between the ages of 18 and 24. About a quarter of them use WeChat. The average daily use time for WeChat users is reported to be 82 minutes a day. WeChat is known for its various features, including messaging, check check, messaging, group messaging, payment services, games, and the ability to follow accounts. It is considered one of the main competitors to other major social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. In 2020, 
the Trump administration announced plans to ban WeChat and TikTok from U.S. app stores, citing concerns about national security. However, these plans were later blocked by a federal judge. It's worth mentioning that the Biden administration dropped the ban on TikTok and WeChat, but the situation may evolve over time. It is important to note that the situation regarding bans and restrictions on WeChat can change over time, and it's advisable to stay up to date with the latest developments and official announcements from relevant authorities in each country. H&R Block, Meta, and Google have been hit with a RICO lawsuit. H&R Block, along with Meta, formerly known as Facebook, and Google is facing a RICO racketeer influence and corrupt organization lawsuit. The lawsuit alleges that these companies violated data privacy laws and engage in the unauthorized sharing of taxpayers' private financial data. The class action lawsuit was filed in a California federal court claiming that H&R Block, Meta, and Google failed to adequately to inform consumers about the use and sharing of their data. The suit alleges that H&R Block sold customer data, including sensitive information such as income, birth dates, filing status, number of dependents, and home addresses. It further asserts that the companies installed trackers on the H&R Block website to scan and transmit tax data back to Meta and Google for targeted advertising purposes. The RICO Act, which was passed in 1970, is being used as the basis for this lawsuit. The RICO Act is typically associated with cases involving organized crime, but it can also be applied to other patterns of racketeering activity. According to a congressional report released in July of 2023, H&R Block was accused of sharing taxpayers' private financial data with third parties, including Google and Meta. This report led to a class action lawsuit being filed against H&R Block, Meta, and Google, alleging violations of the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act. The lawsuit claims that H&R Block site was scraping customers' private tax return information for profit. According to the search results, H&R Block involvement with Google in the lawsuit is related to the use of Google Analytics. The lawsuit claims that H&R Block used the Google Analytics tracker to collect and track user data, including personal tax information, without proper consent or disclosure. This data was allegedly shared with Google and Meta for targeted advertising purposes. The lawsuit against H&R Block claims that H&R Block used Meta's pixel tracking service. The lawsuit alleges that H&R Block, along with Meta and Google, conspired to collect and exploit data on hundreds of H&R Block customers without their consent using tracking pixels. Tracking pixels are strings of data code embedded on websites that enable tracking and data collection. In this case, H&R Block allegedly used tracking pixels from Meta and Google on the tax returns it prepared, allowing the collection of users' private information. Charter Communications sent $63 million in credits to subscribers who were outraged when Disney owned ESPN and other channels went dark on its Spectrum platform amid a fee dispute. 
Charter Communications said it lost fewer cable customers than it expected after a nasty dispute with Disney kept channels including ESPN and ABC News unaccessible for 10 days last month. But the cable company, the parent of television provider Spectrum, still shed a higher than expected. 327,000 customers overall in the third quarter, including 100,000 angry subscribers who pulled the plug due to the Disney dispute. This time a year ago, Charter lost 204,000 subscribers. The loss of subscribers following the Disney feud was less than expected, said Charter. Disney yanked 26 stations it owns, including ESPN, National Geographic, and ABC, from Charter-owned Spectrum's network on August the 31st, the opening of the U.S. College Football Weekend and U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. The dispute over the fees Charter pays Disney to broadcast the channels ended September the 11th, just hours before New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers made his debut in a Monday night football game against the Buffalo Bills. Charter posted net income of just over $1.2 billion for the third quarter on total revenues of nearly $13.6 billion. It spent $63 million on residential customer credits related to the Disney dispute, with the expense negatively impacting its year-over-year revenue growth. While customers were irritated that Charter's billing and retention cost centers were not fully back to normal until early October. As of September the 30th of this year, Charter had 13.8 million residential video customers, 7 million residential wireline voice customers, and 7.2 million mobile line customers. The Google Clock app gets weather forecasts and other new features in a recent update. The weather forecast features may only be appearing on Pixel devices with a new Pixel weather app pre-installed. An update to one of the best alarm clock apps for Android is starting to roll out. The update will bring a handful of new useful features to the Google Clock app. Google is pushing out an update to the Google Clock app version 7.6 of the app is bringing with it four new changes that include a weather forecast toggle, an alarm sync option, the ability to change temperature units, and a centered home clock. Starting with the weather forecast toggle, it appears that the app lets you choose to enable or disable weather forecasts when setting up an alarm. If the function is enabled, you'll be presented with details on the weather for that day when you dismiss the alarm. The next change adds a new option to the settings, allowing you to sync your alarms. Specifically, it's a setting that sync alarms between your phone and the Pixel Watch or Pixel Watch 2. Apparently, the setting works with Wear Operating System 3 on the first-gen smartwatch and on Wear Operating System 4 on the second-gen device. There's also an option to change temperature units, so if the local weather feature is set up, you can go into the settings and change the units to whatever you preferred. For example, Fahrenheit to centigrade or centigrade back to Fahrenheit. It takes you to Android's 14's new regional preferences page. And the home clock is now centered instead of being left aligned. Google Clock version 7.6 
is starting to roll out now, and the update is not yet widely available, but it seems that the weather feature is only appearing on Pixels with the new Pixel Weather app pre-installed, which comes with the Android 14 beta. I got a question for everyone. Do you know how much Google paid to be the default search engine? Bloomberg Law reported that the Google antitrust trial revealed a multi-billion dollar tech company paid out a total of $26.3 billion in 2021 to keep its status as the default search engine on phones and multiple browsers. The Justice Department argued that by spending an exorbitant amount of money to retain its default status, Google is ensuring the market isn't competitive with other search engines. Prabhaka Raghavan, Google's senior vice president and search head, revealed the gigantic numbers during his testimony, according to Bloomberg Law. The search engine giant pays companies such as Apple. I feel a keen sense not to become the next roadkill, Raghavan told the New York Times. If we become second class, we become irrelevant over time. He claimed Amazon is one of two Google's most formidable competitors and said the company stayed ahead of it and other search engines by relentlessly increasing its research and development. Raghavan claimed Google remained a top search engine because of its quality and ease of use, saying users can always switch to Microsoft's Bing or DuckDuckGo if they choose. As I constantly remind my team, nobody wakes up every morning and says, I have to run a Google query. Raghavan told the Times, saying that they simply go to the service that best suits their needs. Yet, in a redacted copy of an internal email chain release, Jim Toros, the vice president of Android Platform Partnerships, wrote, Chrome exists to serve Google search, and if it cannot do that, because it is regulated to be set by the user, the value of the users using Chrome goes to almost zero. Google's payout to make it the default search engine comes weeks after Bernstein analysts reported the company paid Apple roughly $18 billion in 2021 to keep Chrome as a default on Macs, iPads, and iPhones. The report shared with the Register estimates that Google's payout account for 14 to 16% of Apple's annual operating profits. Secondary mobile market for older phones. AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon experienced an increase in revenue from providing wireless services in the third quarter of 2023 compared to the previous year. This growth can be attributed to the addition of phone lines and the shift of many customers towards more expensive plans. With the rollout of 5G technology, it has become increasingly challenging to cell phones that are only a year or two old, and as a result, older phones or phones that customers trade in are often moved into the secondary mobile market, where they can be resold and their resale value can be cashed in on. This growth in the secondary market has helped offset weaker equipment sales as customers hold on to their phones for longer periods. Apple, in particular, has adapted to this trend by fostering a secondary market for older smartphones and focusing on revenue growth from services. 
Customers are holding on to their phones for longer periods of time. This shift towards longer phone life cycles has affected smartphone sales, which have slowed down. However, companies like Apple have adapted to this change in customer behavior. Apple, the leading smartphone manufacturer, has adjusted its strategy to cater to a customer base that is less eager to upgrade their phones frequently. One way Apple has done this is by fostering a thriving secondary market for older smartphones. This allows customers to continue using their older phones for longer periods, which in turn helps increase Apple's market share as device sales slow down. While revenue from services such as advertising, iCloud, and the App Store may be smaller compared to smartphone sales, it has become a significant profit engine for Apple. These services have contributed to Apple's overall revenue growth and have helped offset the impact of slower smartphone sales. NASA wants the Voyagers to age gracefully, so it's time for a software patch. Around a half dozen full-timers and a few part-timers are keeping Voyager alive. 46 years in deep space have taken their toll on NASA's twin Voyager spacecraft. Their antiquated computers sometimes do puzzling things. Their thrusters are wearing out, and their fuel lines are becoming clogged. Around half of their science instruments no longer return data, and the power levels are declining. Still, the lean team of engineers and scientists working on the Voyager program at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab are taking steps to eke out every bit of life from the only two spacecraft flying in interstellar space, the vast volume of dilute gas outside the influence of the sun's solar wind. These are measures that we are trying to take to extend the life of the mission, said Suzanne Dodd, Voyager's project manager at Jet Propulsion Lab. Voyager's instruments are studying cosmic rays, the magnetic field, and the plasma environment in interstellar space. They're not taking pictures anymore. Both probes have traveled beyond the heliopause, where the flow of particles emanating from the sun runs into the interstellar medium. These two spacecrafts are still operating, still returning uniquely valuable scientific data, and every extra day we get data back is a blessing, Dodd said. While spacecraft engineers love redundancy, these spacecraft no longer have the luxury of backups on the voyages. That means in any particular section of the spacecraft, a failure of a single part could bring the mission to a halt. Everything on both spacecraft is single-string, Dodd said. There are not any backup capabilities left. In some cases, we powered off stuff to save power just to keep the instruments on. Just imagine, NASA is problem-solving from more than 12 billion miles away. Over the weekend, ground controllers at JPL plan to uplink a software patch to Voyager 2. It's a test before the ground team sends the same patch to Voyager 1 to resolve a problem with one of its onboard computers. This problem first cropped up in 2022 when engineers noticed the computer responsible for orienting the Voyager 1 spacecraft was sending down garbled status reports despite otherwise operating normally. It turns out the computer somehow entered an incorrect mode, and that's according to NASA. Managers wanted to try the patch on Voyager 2 
before transmitting it to Voyager 1, which is flying further from Earth, deeper into interstellar space. That makes observations of the environment around Voyager 1 more valuable to scientists. At the same time, engineers have devised a new way to operate the thrusters on both Voyager spacecraft. These small rocket engines, fired autonomously, are necessary to keep the main antenna on each probe pointed at Earth. There's a buildup of propellant residue in the narrow lines that feed hydrazine fuel to the thrusters. NASA says the buildup is becoming significant. In some of the lines, so engineers beamed up fresh commands to the spacecraft in the last few weeks to allow the probes to rotate slightly further in each direction before firing the thrusters. This will result in the spacecraft performing fewer, longer firings, each of which adds to the residue in the fuel lines. The downside of this change is that scientific data transmitted back to Earth could occasionally be lost. But over time, the ground team concluded the plan would allow the voyagers to return more data. With these steps, engineers expect the propellant inlet tubes won't become completely blocked for at least five more years, and possibly much longer. There are other things engineers could try to further extend the lifetime of the thrusters. This far into the mission, the engineering team is being faced with a lot of challenges for which we just don't have a playbook, said Linda Spilka, Voyager Project Scientist at JPL. But they continue to come up with creative solutions. Dodd said thruster issue is probably the most serious problem facing the Voyager spacecraft. In 2017, engineers started switching the Voyager probes to a backup set of thrusters after their primary rocket jets show sign of degradation. Both Voyagers are now fully on backup propulsion to control their orientation, but they have plenty of fuel left for another, well, 10 to 15 years. The Voyager probes launched two weeks apart in 1977 took different routes out of the solar system. Voyager 1 flew by Jupiter and Saturn, then took a more speedy trajectory into interstellar space, while Voyager 2 encountered Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune on its outbound journey. Both spacecraft run off of nuclear batteries, which convert heat from decaying plutonium into electricity. They generate a little less power each year, a decline of about 4 watts annually, according to Dodd, and eventually will not produce enough electricity for critical spacecraft systems. Late in this decade, officials anticipate a scenario where they will have to turn off the Voyager scientific instruments one by one. But overall, the power situation is stable and predictable. Earlier this year, Engineers bypassed the voltage regulator on Voyager 2 to allow the spacecraft to draw on more power. The decision means ground controllers will not have to shut off one of the Voyager 2's five remaining scientific instruments until 2026, after previously expecting to deactivate one of the instruments this year. Dodd said ground teams will do the same with Voyager 1, which only has four active instruments and therefore uses less power. If you only look at the power situation, the Voyager should make it until, well, 2030, and maybe slightly longer, before the, the decay of the plutonium power source 
forces NASA to switch off all the scientific instruments. The transmitter takes about 200 watts of power, so once we get down to that level of power, that will be the end of the mission, Dodd said. Even when they stop working, NASA's voyages will continue on to the stars. A lot of things could break before we run out of power, she said. Just like this thruster issue sort of popped up, there's a lot of other issues that could pop up and cause a mission to fail. Because of their distances, the voyagers can only communicate through the largest 230-foot or 70-meter dish antennas in NASA's Deep Space Network or by arraying multiple smaller antennas together to detect the faint signals coming from the spacecraft. Voyager 1 is currently located more than 15 billion miles, that's 24 billion kilometers from Earth, about four times greater than the average distance of Pluto. Voyager 2 is a few billion miles closer. NASA still makes contact with Voyagers daily, but it's all done with a small team of about a dozen full-time equivalent employees, and only about a half of those are fully devoted to the Voyager program. The others share their time on other NASA projects. At 46 years in space, the Voyagers are NASA's longest-lived mission, and the fact that they've reached this longevity, exploring the solar system's outermost frontier, makes their accomplishments all the more impressive. They've overcome lots of issues, and the engineers have been very clever in overcoming those issues. Dodd said, I think the focus now is let's get to 50, meaning 50 years, and have the biggest party we can. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few minutes talking about IT, the workplace, how we all fit together. And one of the things that has been bugging me and kind of picking away at my mind is is one of the topics that... Really, we struggle with this. We we all struggle with this, whether we're in IT or we're regular people outside of IT. And that is, how do we move forward in the workplace? And, and I'm not saying move up. I'm just saying move forward. Move forward from where we're at right now. And moving forward is different than, you know, becoming a manager, becoming a director, a, you know, a CIO or anything like that. What I'm talking about is how do we remain valuable in the workplace? And the best thing I can think about is by going through and making sure that we are continually learning Continually learning is something that is in a number of different fields. You have the continuing education credits and all of these different things that go along with uh, perhaps, you know, you're in the teaching profession. So you have to continue to learn how to teach. And the medical field has a similar thing. And and we have the same thing in IT where we are all moving forward and we're getting certificates on the latest and greatest and so forth. The technologies of yesteryear do not benefit us very often. The experience with them will benefit us. I have experience in Novell Netware. 
Okay, Novell hasn't been around for eh, roughly 20, 25 years. It hasn't been popular for 20 years. And uh, and it was it was great, but it, it gave me all kinds of learning and it did all kinds of wonderful things. It was very simple and it was very basic and it provided servers to everybody so that we could all share information in one spot on a network. We all connected to them. OK, this is basic knowledge today. This is stuff that we deal with today that is we, we do. It, it exists. We know it exists back then. It was revolutionary today. <laughs> it, it, it's mundane. But we need to continue to chase after the revolutionary. We need to continue to chase after things that are going to make us better, make us more informed, make us deal with tomorrow rather than yesterday. So what does that mean? I've, I've, I've looked at Windows 11. I've poked at it a little bit here and there. I do not use it on my primary machine. I will not use it on my primary machine. I think it is horrible. But for me to understand Windows 12, I must understand Windows 11. And for me to understand Windows 11, I must understand Windows 10 and Windows 8 and Vista and 7 and ME and 98, 95 and uh, XP and all of that. I have to understand the Mac OS and I have to understand Linux operating systems as well. And these all different sources of knowledge come together and they help me to that next level. Likewise, for everybody out there, you should be learning Microsoft Office. You should also probably learn OpenOffice. That'll give you some different unique things of learning how different people do the same thing you're doing. Why do I say that? So if you learn how to do task 123 in two different programs, not just one, but two different programs, you're going to start to learn the differences between the two different programs and the similarities. And that, believe it or not, is going to help you to learn if a third program comes along. And you have to learn that. Oh, well, this is how it was done in in OpenOffice. And this is how it was done in Microsoft Office. So, therefore, they're going to do it one of those two ways. No, it wasn't either of those. It was a third way, but it was very similar to OpenOffice. Or it was similar to Microsoft Office. So, as you learn these things, all of these different avenues, you start to build your mind. You start to build your processing and your thinking. And that becomes exciting. So often, we get stuck in our ways. This is how we do it. This is how we've done it. This is how we'll continue to do it. No, we're not going to continue doing it this way. It is going to evolve. It's going to change. I will tell you, I've seen so much change over the decades that I've been in IT, that I've been dealing with computers, that I have been moving along through. And all of my knowledge today relies on either experimentation and learning to move forward or by looking at all of the things from the past. And not all of the things from the past really connect up the same way as you might expect. So what am I trying to say? Go on out. 
take a computer class in anything, and I don't care if it's an online class, I don't care if it's in person at your local uh, college or your regional occupational program or whatever it is, I want you to learn. Whether we're talking about going to LinkedIn Learning or Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, or, or, or any of these other different things. Coursera is another one. I don't care. I want you to learn. I want you to become better than you are today. I want you to become a better person for tomorrow. And that is my hope for you. And that is where I think we all need to be. And we need to do it faster than we've ever done it before. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. In case anyone's worrying, ChatGPT isn't coming for your coding job. New technologies have long promised to make human software engineers redundant, but developers have only gotten more important over time. Software engineers have joined the ranks of copy editors, translators, and others who fear that they are about to be replaced by generative AI, and it might be surprising to learn that coders have been under threat before. New technologies have long promised to disrupt engineering, and these innovations have always failed to get rid of the need for human software developers. If anything, they often made these workers that much more indispensable. To understand where hand-wringing about the end of programmers come from and why it's overblown, we need to look back at the evolution of coding and computing. Software was an afterthought for many early computing pioneers who consider hardware and system architecture the true intellectual pursuits within the field. To the computer scientists, John Backus, for instance, calling coders programmers or engineers was akin to relabeling janitors as custodians. An attempt at pretending that their menial work was more important than it was. What's more, many early programmers were women and sexist colleagues have often saw their work as secretarial, but while programmers might have held a lowly position in the eyes of somebody like Bacchus, they were also indispensable. They saved people like him from having to bother with the routine business of programming, debugging, and testing. Even though they perform a vital, if underappreciated role, software engineers often fit poorly into companies' hierarchies. In the early days of computers, they were frequently self-taught and worked on programs that they alone had devised, which meant that they didn't have a clear place within pre-existing departments and that managing them could be complicated. As a result, many modern features of software development were developed to simplify and even eliminate interactions with coders. Fortran was supposed to allow scientists and others to write programs without any support from a programmer. COBOL's English syntax was intended to be so simple that managers could bypass developers entirely. Waterfall-based development was invented to standardize and make routine the development of new software. Object-oriented programming was supposed to be so simple that eventually all computers could do their own software engineering. In some cases, programmers were resistant to these changes, fearing that programs like compilers might drive them out of work. Ultimately, though, their concerns were truly unfounded. Fortran and COBOL, for instance, have proved to be durable, long-lived languages, but they didn't replace computer programmers 
If anything, these innovations introduced new complexity into the world of computing that created even greater demand for coders. Other changes like waterfall made things worse, creating more complicated bureaucratic processes that made it difficult to deliver large features. At a conference sponsored by NATO in 1968, organizers declared that there was a crisis in software engineering. There were too few people to do the work, and large projects kept grinding to a halt or experiencing delays. Bearing this history in mind, claims that ChatGPT will replace all software engineers seem almost assuredly misguided and misplaced. Firing engineers and throwing AI at blocked feature development would probably result in disaster, followed by the rehiring of those engineers in short order. More reasonable suggestions show that large language models, as LLMs, can replace some of the duller work of engineering. They can offer auto-complete suggestions or methods to sort data, if they're prompted correctly. As an engineer, you can imagine using an LLM to rubber duck a problem, giving it prompts for potential solutions that can be reviewed. It wouldn't replace conferring with another engineer because LLMs still don't understand the actual requirement of a feature or the interconnections within the code base, but it would speed up those conversations by getting rid of the busy work. ChatGBT could still upend the tech labor market through expectations of greater productivity. If it eliminates some of the more routine tasks of development and puts Stack Overflow out of business, managers may be able to make more demands of engineers who work for them. But computing history has already demonstrated that attempts to reduce the presence of developers or streamline their role only end up adding complexity to the work and making those workers even more necessary. If anything, ChatGPT stands to eliminate the duller work of coding much the same way that compilers ended the drudgery of having to work in binary, which would make it easier for developers to focus more on building out the actual architecture of their creation. A computer scientist had once observed, as long as there was no machines, programming was no problem at all. When we had a few weak computers, programming became a mild problem. And now we have gigantic computers. Programming has become an equally gigantic problem. We've introduced more and more complexity to computers in the hopes of making them so simple they don't need to be programmed at all. Unsurprisingly, throwing complexity at complexity has only made it worse, and we're no closer to letting managers cut out the software engineers. If LLMs can match the promises of their creators, we may very well cause it to accelerate even further. After four years, or more than four years really, has 5G lived up to expectations? It has been more than four years now since the introduction of 5G technology. Many people were excited about the potential of 5G and had high expectations for its capabilities. Wireless carriers in South Korea and the United States have already launched fifth-generation 5G services for everyday cell phone users more than four years ago. Since then, 5G has been gradually rolling out in various countries around the world. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been invested worldwide in the development and deployment of 5G networks. 
5G technology promises faster speeds, lower latency, and increased capacity compared to its predecessor, 4G. It is expected to enable a wide range of applications, including autonomous vehicles, smart cities, Internet of Things devices, and virtual reality experiences. 5G is designed to provide significantly faster download and upload speeds compared to 4G. It has the potential to deliver speeds up to 10 gigabits per second, which is much faster than the average 4G speed of around 20 to 30 megabits per second. Latency is also affected. 5G aims to reduce network latency, which is the time it takes for data to travel between devices and the network. It promises ultra-low latency, potentially as low as one millisecond, which is significantly faster than the average 4G latency of around 50 milliseconds. 5G is expected to support a massive number of connected devices simultaneously. It has the potential to handle up to 1 million devices per square kilometer, which is a significant improvement over 4G capacity. The adoption and implementation of 5G technology has been progressing steadily, and mobile network operators worldwide have been deploying 5G networks in various cities and regions. However, the availability of 5G coverage may still be limited in some areas as the rollout is an ongoing process. While 5G technology has shown promising capabilities and potential, its full impact and realization of expectations may still be unfolding. As the deployment of 5G continues and more devices become 5G compatible, we can expect to see further advances and innovations in various industries that leverage the power of 5G networks. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you've got uh, you've got some more stuff to review. Oh, yeah. Let, let's go back to an external controller, third-party controller for garage doors. This one is from Moe's. That's M-O-E-S. It's their MS-102 Wi-Fi Smart Garage Door Opener Controller Remote Wireless Relay DIY Module. And if you if you can install it fast, you can install it faster than you can say it. It works with most garage door openers. You can check compatibility. Here's the way: temporarily short out your opener's two connectors for the cables that lead back to its wall control. Two wires okay, there. All right, yeah. You know, usually it's one that's a single wire and the one that's next to it. Now, if you can short it out and it operates your door, then this will work just the way it is. Uh, you connect your module, whatever you're doing to those two wires to control the garage door. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, you connect to a magnetic sensor that tells you when the door is closed. There's a sensor harness from the controller to the uh, actually magnetic read switch is the sensor and there's a magnet there. Uh, it, it's pretty easy. Uh, it's it, it, it mounts right there on the opener. It's on low band mm -hmm, yeah. 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi and uh, one more place that's important for you to understand, it's power cord plugs into an AC outlet. There's no UL safety certification for this thing. It doesn't perform the UL required five-second audible and visual alarm when remotely closing a door. So, mm -hmm. okay. you know, use at your risk. The published temperature spec claim that it can work from 67 Fahrenheit below zero 
to 155 above, well, let's just say if, I'm dubious. If, if my house is at 155 degrees, there's something wrong. Uh, yeah. Call well, the fire department. Yeah. Anyway, I, I checked. It's really from 32 to 95 degrees, and it may not quite get there. Uh, mm, my garages yeah. have exceeded both. So, you know, use your yeah, judgment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, its app handles remote door control, alerts to door openings and closings, some timer-related functions. The Moe's Wi-Fi opener control module is about $27 at Moe'sHouse.com. Okay. All right. Now, staying with the car and uh, in-garage kind of subjects, uh, before I was able to convert Android Auto to wireless, anytime yeah. I wanted it to work, I had to plug my phone into the car's USB port with a wire that was often left dangling. Yeah, my my wife has the same problem. She does uh, Apple CarPlay. Yeah. Yeah. Even, plug it in, yeah. Yeah, even after going wireless, same thing if I wanted my phone to stay charged. The little rubber mounting thing I had on the dash to hold the phone was okay most of the time, but not always. And it blocked some of the display behind it. What's a product reviewer to do? You know what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I asked IOTTI, that's I-O-T-T-I-E, and they're very good people, to send me two of their wireless charging mounts that I'd be able to attach to either the dash or the windshield that would hold the phone securely, okay. that would give me more flexibility in positioning it, and would give me cheap QI, wireless charging. The only wire involved is a cable powering the mount, and for Android phones, it like my Pixel 6 Pro, it's a 10-watt cordless charger. Where the old rubber mm -hmm. thing uh, meant, you know, that kind of sofa for the phone that I, that I had on the dash, yeah, uh, meant the phone was always horizontal in landscape mode. The new mount let me go vertical in portrait mode. Even better, between the extension arm and the ball joint, I was able to float the phone just ahead of the dash, where the only view behind it that it could block was a little bit of my hood. Not anything beyond that. Okay. Uh, that's true for both IOT products. The mounting agility and charging are the same for both, but here's what's different. The IOT AutoSense, uh, it has a proximity sensor and automatically clamps its arms onto your phone into its cradle mm -hmm. with a motorized hug when your phone, the back of your phone gets close. When it's time to go, there's buttons on the side. You push and your phone lets go. It's about $60 on Amazon. The easy one-touch wireless 2, about $35 on Amazon, instead of an, an electronic proximity detector, it has a trigger button. So when you push your phone onto it, the arms come in to hug it. And then, you know, you push a button to, to let it go. The only note is that when I drop the bottom foot of the mount all the way down to help align the charging coils, the inside of the mount hits the volume down button just Glances it, only just a little. Mm, okay. So I slid the foot up a little, still get a good charge, and all my buttons are unbuttoned. Uh, if you want to see the IOTI auto clamping car mount in action, just ask me for a ride. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, so uh, we've got a, uh, just a little bit over a minute left. All right. And you here's something to mention. IOTI's got more stuff. So do many of the others. The biggest change is in the amount of magnetic charging power that can go across. The generation I just talked about, very reasonably priced, is 10 watts. 10 watts is fine 
gets things done pretty rapidly. Yeah. But yeah. 15 watts is the new and upcoming standard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some things, especially as Android 14 arrives, are going to be able to handle more. So take a look at what's out there. I would also advise you, if you see something that seems to make sense for you, do buy it now. There may be inventory problems ahead where you won't be able to get what you want. So if you see it, it's in stock. You can get it. Get it. Uh, also, the whole idea of putting it on the dash this way and having your phone powered by it and not having to plug and unplug cords for any reason and having it not fall off, boy, it's kismet. Uh, that's it. <laughs> that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Daylight Saving Time In the United States, Daylight Saving Time begins on the second Sunday in March and ends on the first Sunday in November. In 2023, Daylight Saving Time started on Sunday, March the 12th, when the clocks were turned forward by one hour at 2 a.m. local time. Daylight Saving Time will end on Sunday, November the 5th, just to remind everyone of that, when the clocks will be turned backwards by one hour at 2 a.m. local time. The main purpose of Daylight Saving Time is to make better use of daylight during the longer days of summer, which can help to conserve energy and reduce longer days of summer, which can help to conserve energy and reduce the need for artificial lighting in the evenings. However, the practice of Daylight Saving Time has been a topic of debate and discussion with arguments for and against its effectiveness and impact on various aspects of life. It's worth noting that not all states in the United States observe daylight saving time. Arizona and Hawaii are the two states that do not observe daylight saving time, although there are some exceptions within Arizona, such as the Navajo Nation, which does observe daylight saving time. In 2022, the United States Senate approved a bill to make daylight saving time permanent throughout the year. The bill aims to prevent the slight uptick to car crashes that typically occurs around the time changes and to provide more evening daylight for businesses. However, the legislation has not yet been passed by the U.S. House of Representatives. On March the 2nd of this year, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio reintroduced the Sunshine Protection Act of 2023 to the 118th Congress. This act proposes making daylight saving time permanent across the United States, eliminating the need to change the clocks twice a year. The impact of daylight saving time has been studied and debated over the years, and supporters argue that it can save energy, reduce traffic accidents, and provide more opportunities for outdoor activities in the evenings. However, there are also studies that suggest Daylight saving time may have unintended consequences, such as increased electricity demand and negative impact on sleep patterns and health. Some countries have chosen not to observe daylight saving time at all, while others have made changes to the start and end dates or have experimented with different approaches. Overall, daylight saving time remains a topic of interest and discussion with ongoing debates about its benefits drawbacks, and potential changes in the different parts of the world. And just to remind everyone, when it comes time before you go to sleep on Saturday night, turn the clock back one hour. Public Service Announcements 
Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday, November the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, November the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, November the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, November the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. Kingsbyte Computer Club meets Tuesday, November the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant. Address is 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information... Phone number is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group general meeting has been canceled for November, but their website that you can get more information is bcug.com. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN live streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy, Till we meet again, same time, same station next week.